Welcome to Real Deep Stuff. We've saved your seat at the table for this conversation. We're so glad you're here. Welcome back to part two with Wilkie Pittman as she shares her amazing journey through her double lung transplant. And we're so excited that she's here this month because April is National Donate Life Month. Stay tuned after our conversation to find out how you can become a registered organ donor. Back to the conversation. How long was your surgery? Um, the surgery was about 10, 11 hours. That um, is a lot. A lot of time to be under anesthesia and everything. Yeah, that yeah. was one reason that I was a high risk. They had to do that whole chest wall reconstruction and then the transplant. And one interesting part about that is because of all that extra work they had to do in there, they decided not to staple me up where my incision was. And that incision, and you can edit this out if it's not appropriate, but it, I'm, my incision goes underneath one armpit uh-huh. to the other armpit. And it's kind of a, they call it a clamshell. It's like a scalloped incision uh-huh. up under my breast. And they didn't close me after surgery. So, um, And why? They wanted it to heal from the inside out to, oh, oh, to yeah, yeah. reduce oh, infection. Yes, so if they'd sewn it up and it had been infection, that would have been bad. Yeah. So they told me they thought it would take about four weeks to close that wound. That's so my, my transplant was on January the 26th, um, 2020. And that wound closed in April of 2021. 15 Whoa. months later so and you know that's just another miracle than this whole thing that I had an open wound that large and every time it got smaller but I had an open wound for 15 months first that it would ever heal after that long is a miracle but second that it never got infected because an yeah. infection in a transplant patient can be serious sure sure I'm on all these um, uh, anti-rejection medicines that makes it very hard to, to fight mm. off an infection and so was it Do, normal to take that long? No. What What were they saying about that? Well, it's just that it was so massive. I mean, it was wow. how many inches long that is, and it was sure. probably three three inches, four four inches wide. Like, like how that. did you shower? I didn't. That <laughs> was not allowed to shower Whoa. for a year and a half, practically. Oh, I had to take sponge bath. Sponge, I had yeah. to boil water mm. and 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 sponge bath with boiled water. I couldn't drink tap water until my their rule is. You cannot bathe or drink tap water until your wounds are healed. That doesn't say a lot about our water. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad I have the filter on my water. I do drink tap water now, but there's some people in my transplant group that won't ever drink it. They're scared to drink it. I don't drink when I travel out of the country. Right. Which no for one sure. would. But sure. um, I do drink. But, um, yeah, there's a lot of rules after transplant with um, anti-rejection medication. You I wash I wash a banana before I eat it mm. before I cut open mm-hmm. a banana or mm-hmm. peel it. Everything that probably I, by organic maybe. Well, it's just a matter of how it's been handled. You don't know if it's been washed and cleaned or whatever, and it right. just can't introduce any kind of bacteria. You can't, you know. Okay. You can't eat. Bye bye to sushi. No more sushi. Oh. No more medium rare, rare steak. Uh, prime yeah. rib. Yeah. <laughs> Runny oh. egg. Oh, all those good things yeah. are not part of my mm-hmm. um, on my acceptable mm-hmm. list, but um, small cost to count. Say <laughs> yes, you here exactly. So, so yeah, it was about a eleven hour surgery overnight. I um, I will say this, you know, I was 
not alert in the recovery room, but I knew what was going on. I could hear people talking. Okay. I could hear my nurse saying things. And not that she said anything bad, but she was saying things and she was banging things around trying to get me to wake up. Oh, really? Um, and I, But I couldn't wake up. And I remember having these thoughts in my mind like, um, Wilkie, you have been asleep for two weeks and everybody is worried about you and you need to wake up out of this coma you're in from the surgery. And and when I had did it wake up... really been two weeks? No, it had been like 24 hours. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like in yeah. my mind. I had these sure. thoughts in my own mind. Sure. Um, I, 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 the surgery was Sunday night into Monday and I woke up on Tuesday. Okay. But I didn't feel right. I thought I had had a stroke or something because I know they were giving me a lot of pain medication but I just felt so off till about mm. Saturday that mm. I was like, I wonder if I'm going to get out of this fog. Mm-hmm. It was kind of worried me and scared mm-hmm. me a little bit, but sure. it did clear. But that ICU, I was in ICU for two weeks. Again, these are not normal. So if you're listening to this and you, <laughs> their normal is to be out of the hospital in about two weeks. Amazingly, wow. the average is they're in the hospital for about two weeks. That two to three incredible. weeks. I was in the ICU on a ventilator for two weeks. Mm. So, yeah, two weeks on the um, ventilator. I was on ECMO. Uh, it's called ECMO, which is similar to like a heart-lung bypass mm-hmm. for the first 24 hours just to kind of let... It is a life support mm-hmm. system that just kind of lets your heart and lungs oh. rest. Okay. It's like and I got to this keep you alive. So this is yeah. like the trauma okay. of that is over a little bit. Not everybody has that but I, I needed that mm-hmm. I did have a trach mm-hmm. I had nine chest tubes were you awake aware of the trach oh yeah because I had it for, I had it I had it capped until the day I left like seven weeks later I was in ICU for two weeks and stepped down for five so I was in in the hospital after my transplant for seven weeks which is very long was it claustrophobic for you to have that trachea too no it doesn't make you feel claustrophobic but it it hurts it didn't feel good Every time they would roll you, it would... Maybe it's a personal thing, and Mm -hmm. and you're a much stronger person than me. When when I had some surgery, I had a a breathing tube down my throat, Mm -hmm. and in recovery, I woke up before they expected... And I just, I remember being a, you know, one eye open and the nurses were like, oh, she's, awake. she's awake, go pull. And they had to pull the tube yeah, out yeah. with me fully awake. And I just remember feeling like that was incredibly claustrophobic. But I'm sure it's probably different that. when they go down your throat. But I had the, the yeah. I had the tracheostomy, so it's in sure. my throat, not so in my mouth. you didn't really feel it It doesn't. Much. It okay. probably has a, I mean, you feel it. And it, for me, um, it, it, I had a cut or something under that that was quite large. I mean, you can see my scar is not small. Mm-hmm. It's not too pretty. And not everybody has to have a, a I didn't notice it to you. I'm so happy to it. hear you say that because that's like... I didn't notice it. Something <laughs> I really don't love, but I mean, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. But, it's um, a battle scar. It's okay. It's a what you do? That vein about it. But it was like, I really wasn't expecting it because in the pre-transplant phase, had I been the normal transplant person who went as an outpatient, had all the testing, went Mm -hmm. to the pre-rehab. Part of that pre-rehab is you have to have an identified caregiver and a backup caregiver, and they have to sign contracts that they will provide your care post-op because they know that a transplant patient is not likely to be able to take care of themselves fully and keep themselves motivated to take their meds and do all that they're supposed to do to get well, and they hold a caregiver responsible to hold you responsible. And then part of that... 
caregiver has to go through training. It's so well thought out. They have classes they go to that teach them about what to expect. And when they go into the ICU room and see all these machines, what they're for and what mm-hmm. they're doing and, and all of these things. So having that exposure and knowledge of what yeah. all is going on, I think is really, really helpful. That's remarkable, for sure. So wow. anyway. So at seven weeks, did you feel, did they deem you fully recovered? Oh, gosh. Oh, Christy. <laughs> <laughs> you say that facetiously because you know. It was a while. Yeah, yeah. I... Um, well, maybe like fully recovered from that part of the surgery. Not fully yeah, recovered, I, go have a nice life. Right. Yeah. I think that the main reason I stayed in the hospital so long was because of my wound. Okay. Um, it just needed care and yeah. daily care. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I still had a trach, too. And I was... Yeah. And I was very debilitated. And I was getting therapy mm-hmm. in the hospital. And I left the hospital still needing help to get up and down from a chair. Oh, After seven really? weeks, I couldn't get out of a chair by myself still. Just because if you were so I weak? I was so weak. Okay. I was so weak. I remember waking up in the ICU, and I, I, I felt paralyzed. I couldn't move a bone in my body. Mm. I couldn't wiggle my... I could wiggle my toes, but I couldn't move my leg on the bed. I had to, Somebody had to pick it up and move it. I was, I was that weak. Well, I know the muscles will atrophy and such, and did, did the post-op medications help mm-hmm. with that to make you feel weaker? Well... I take prednisone, and I will take prednisone for the rest of my life, and that does deteriorate your muscles. Mm-hmm. So it's something I can still combat and have to mm-hmm. stay active. And I'm in therapy right now. I've done two or three different courses of therapy. The doctor's really mm-hmm. great about making referrals for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been having some issues with my back, um, which is also a side effect of the prednisone. I've developed some pre Osteoporosis, they call it osteopenia, where um, okay. yeah. I'm heading towards mm-hmm. osteoporosis because of the prednisone, mm-hmm. along with other things that prednisone. I've, I'm in stage three kidney disease from the prednisone. Oh, no. It's not uncommon, not often, but it's not unheard of for transplants of any kind who have to take all these medicines that are processed in your kidneys to need kidney transplants down the road. So in my support group, there's a fair number of people who talk about really? having had kidney transplants two or three, four years after their lung transplant. Wow. So that I don't know if that will be in my future or not, but I do have some damage to my kidneys from the prednisone and the ProGraph, my primary trans, uh, anti-rejection med that I take twice a day. Wow. I've got neuropathy in my feet. I'm, I have diabetes from prednisone. Where I, I, I shouldn't mm-hmm. say I have diabetes. I have my blood sugar is affected by my prednisone. It's a medication. Yeah. I know it raises induced. it. Yeah. So I don't have yeah. to take insulin very often at all. Uh-huh. Rarely, quite honestly, but occasionally I do. Okay. Because of a drop? No. Or because it goes mm-hmm. too high? Okay. Wow. And then, yeah. Wow. So, so there's a... You know, it's like my doctors told me, that same doctor that came in, Dr. Haney, before the transplant to say they would list me, he was very clear to say, you know, lung transplant is not a cure. We're just going to exchange one set of problems for another. Mm. And truth be told, the average length of additional life for a lung transplant is about seven to nine years. And I'm on year three. However, there's great hope. You know, uh, there's people on my support group from all over the world. I just celebrated my 15th year anniversary. Oh, I, love I just to hear ce- that. celebrated my 14th, my 18th. Yeah. 
And the longest living person with a lung transplant was actually one of the very first people to receive one, and he received it at UNC Chapel Hill, and he, he just recently died, and he lived for 33 years. There you go. So, so why not you? Why absolutely. Not? I have a lot of hope in that. Absolutely. You know, the support group has been a big part of my mm-hmm. post-transplant journey, and I, was I get a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it, it it's a two-edged sword though because while we celebrate a lot of victories, there's a lot of hard things that are sure. shared there as well, and it's, yeah. it's can be upsetting. And even though I've met a couple of people face to face when I go to clinic, but most of the people I have never met them face to face, but we chat daily, mm. frequently. Do you do like a Zoom? Or? No, it's all on Facebook. Okay, so yeah, it's just oh, messaging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's mostly questions like, "Did you have you ever had this?" Yeah. My lab says this. Has anyone ever had that? Do you know what that means? Oh, I'm on this medicine. Resource. What's the side effect of that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Please pray for my wife. She's had to go back in with rejection, things like that. Sure, sure. That is a really great priceless resource it is. for all of you to, to have someone that you don't have to explain it all to get to your question. Right. You just exactly. say, like, here's my question. Yeah. Like, yeah, I got it. Yeah. Wow. Duke has one of their own that I think a Duke transplant person's wife actually started and he has since passed and she still continues to monitor be the administrator mm. of it but there are it's open to anyone so there's transplant people in that group from all over mm-hmm. the US and even mm-hmm. outside of the US mm-hmm. and then I'm in another one that's just uh, it says lung transplant I'm, I get the sense it's somewhere possibly in Australia because it's full of Australian transplant folks but it might be abroad but it's a very international that one yeah yeah and it's interesting because they people do things differently in different centers Mm -hmm. even in this country sure then and then certainly do them differently in other countries Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. yeah well if we could um pause for a second and circle back to the did you feel like you went through a grieving process of losing part of your first you lost your two ribs which was unexpected and now you've lost your two original lungs is there a grieving process to losing part of your body i didn't experience that personally i felt like you know i it was these are bad parts of my body and good riddance in a way i'm was eager to be able to receive a transplant i would say the only thing i've really grieved is maybe some lifestyle changes you know you Mm -hmm. do have to adjust there's Mm -hmm. things i just can't do anymore Okay. Um, and my job is one of them. I yeah. don't feel like I'll ever be able to go back to physical therapy. I don't physically feel like I could do that. And I don't know that it's necessarily wise for me to be around sick people totally and germs and things. I have Smart. to be kind of careful about things like that. Yeah, I've had, I've had to just realize it takes me longer to do things that I want to do. I'm, you were asking me earlier about the recovery. I, I went through... Uh, five weeks in the hospital getting me ready to be discharged to the hospital. Duke likes to keep you in the area for about three months after your transplant. They see mm-hmm. you weekly and check mm-hmm. on you very closely. So I went to my brother's house and I actually stayed. I was discharged March the 13th. I can remember it because it was a Friday the 13th of 2020. Mm-hmm. And if that rings a bell to anybody, they will know that that was the weekend that the yes. governor shut the state yes. down. Yes, I remember well. <clears throat> so, and, that, and again, that's just another miracle that God did. He got me out of the hospital before all those COVID what? cases started coming into the hospital, which could have been very dangerous oh, for me. That could have, that's the worst case yeah. scenario yeah. for you. Perfect storm. And, wow. And even when COVID came, started coming into the North Carolina region around that time, 
it was shortly after that they stopped doing transplants for a short season. I don't know how long it was, but they just didn't perform any because it was too high risk. So if I hadn't had mine when I did, I might not have gotten it, and who knows if I would have survived to get one later. So the Lord worked that out. Right. So, um, but I got home to my brother's home before COVID really Mm -hmm. hit. Yeah, I think the reason I asked about the grieving Mm -hmm. process is, you know, I'm not medical, but I, I just observe and I see people go through maybe grieving when they've lost, a, like an amputee has lost a leg or an arm or a foot, like military right. combat or diabetes or something like that. And then mm-hmm. women with needing a mastectomy, right. you know, or even in chemotherapy, um, hair loss is, is traumatic yes. for people. So. Just a curious question on on a body part you can't see. Do you still feel that type of grief that part of you is not there? I don't grieve the loss of my lungs. Wow. Okay. So you didn't, you didn't, that's awesome. That's awesome. And we talked about your healthcare workers. I'm sure you think that they are community heroes. Um, Did, how did they help you on the backside? Like you were talking about how they kind of, because they work in such a niche field that Mm -hmm. they kind of probably all wear a little bit of a counselor cap, you know, just on their daily routines. How, how were they on the the other side of surgery for you? I can't, I can't say enough about how lucky we are to have such a premier Mm -hmm. medical Mm -hmm. institution like Duke in our backyard and have access to the cares and research and Mm -hmm. cutting edge uh, technologies that they have. So, Everybody there, I, I never honestly met or encountered anyone who wasn't more than completely compassionate and mm-hmm. professional. And I mm-hmm. mean, absolutely everyone. The women who came in the middle of the night to take my blood and take my chest x-rays and and the, the sweet little ladies that cleaned my room and mm-hmm. brought my food and everything. I mean, just, mm-hmm. um, just so kind, Yeah, you know. Yeah, and I mean, you. I spent Christmas in the hospital. Mm. I spent Thanksgiving in the hospital. I spent New Year's in the hospital. I did get out before Easter, <laughs> but yeah, you're going to see what people are made of when you are in the hospital on Christmas night or Christmas Eve. Yeah, you know. Yes. Absolute sweethearts, glad to be here. They're called to those jobs yeah. as you were as a physical therapist for so many years. Yeah. So when you got to a point where all those amazing workers were ready to release mm-hmm. you, can you talk to us about what it felt like on your journey home? You were now going to be going home and like what it felt like to go into your home yeah. like physically. You know, they make a big deal out of your discharge when you're there as long as I was. And they all, uh, oh. even down to the the. Though I don't know what their title is, but she's basically like the secretary of the ward. Uh-huh. Everybody is out there doing their laps, and they have all these encouraging little tactics to help you with that. They have, um, you've seen those little buttons that um, staples sells that says, Yes. I, what does it say? Like, I did it or whatever. I don't know. What's the button? <laughs> the little button. Anyway. Oh my goodness. It's totally blank. <laughs> yeah, me too. What you mean. It's one of their little <laughs> the easy, the commercial. Easy button? Yeah. Easy button? That's easy. Whatever. That's easy, yeah. They have those along the counter, so you can tap them when you make your laps. They give you this little cool. string that has colored beads, and you move your beads as you do your laps, and they all want to know how many laps you did. So they're all, it's a team. It's a real team there. Nice. So they um, they all come out of their rooms when you leave and give you a clap, you oh. know, down the hallway kind of thing to, to, to see you 
go. But you know, I had been in the hospital, essentially, I was home for a week or two here and there. This has been since the end of July, and now we're in May yeah. that I've been in the hospital. I'm sorry, that was at my brother's time. I got out of the hospital in March, so that's a long time to yeah. be in the hospital. You know, I wasn't depressed, but I think my family thought I was depressed because I didn't. They offered often to take me in the wheelchair. Um, there were times when I couldn't do that because mm-hmm. I had a chest tube or the various medical things that kept sure. me in the room. But when I was off of some of that, they wanted to take me off the floor. Yeah. And I never really wanted to go. I didn't want to go outside. So I had not been outside in months Whoa. to feel air on my face. That alone can have psychological <laughs> ramifications, honestly. That sunlight, the fresh air. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it wasn't that I didn't want to go out, but I just knew it was going to take a lot of effort, and I wanted to save that energy mm-hmm. and effort for other things. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, no, I don't want to go. But So it was very surreal, in a way, to go outside yeah. <laughs> for the first time in a very long time and just feel the sunshine on my face. And yeah. all of that was it. Was it over sensory? Or, or no, it was very pleasant. It was yeah. very pleasant. It just it was very odd, very very odd mm. to to be out outside again after mm-hmm. many many months of not mm-hmm. doing anything but looking out the window. And I didn't have to have a great view in my hospital sure. room, unfortunately. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. And I went to my brother's house. I stayed there, like I said a minute ago. Um, and I went to rehab, post-rehab, mm-hmm. for about two months. And they had certain goals bef- they wanted me to achieve before I could come home to Charlotte. And one of them was getting up from the ground by myself, and that was a challenge. Like if you're sitting on the ground, you have to mm-hmm. get, you up. Have to get okay. up off wow. the floor. Okay. And they really wanted you to be able to get up from a chair without using your arms. And that was really, I mean, my legs were just weak, and I couldn't mm-hmm. do it. Mm-hmm. So it took me a couple of months, but I did meet those goals um, with a lot of hard work and determination. I was going to therapy every single day. So I was allowed to come home on Mother's Day weekend in May of 2021. I came home on Saturday, and Mother's Day was the next day. And I was still on a walker to walk. I had balance issues, and I didn't quite trust myself. And so I was still using a rolling walker. So this is how many months? January to May, and I'm still on a walker. Mm -hmm. So I started therapy here in Charlotte and got better a lot faster once I got home. I think part of being, you know, we were... We were fortunate to have my brother's house to stay in, but he has a small little house, and it's not my house, so I'm not going right. to put her around in his home. Right. You know, I would try to do a little walking, and there were four of us and a dog there, and it was crowded, and it just, I just kind of, uh, we had a hospital bed in his living room that I used because I couldn't mm. get up the steps to mm-hmm. the bedrooms, mm-hmm. and so I didn't really it wasn't that I was lazy and didn't want to do anything. I just didn't want to be intrusive into his sure. space that much. Sure. But once I got home, I started, like I told you earlier, we had just recently moved into that home, and I yeah. couldn't remember where I put anything. Yeah. So I kind of basically redid my whole kitchen, and mm-hmm. I very soon started climbing the stepladder to get things redone in the kitchen and went through my closets and drawers and just nested yeah. everything, you know. Yes. And it, because of that, I was able to, I got a lot better a lot quicker oh absolutely because yeah. I, I know that despite not having a good view in the hospital I know that you were just so grateful to be able to be there and do what you know all that needed to be done and then you were so grateful to be at your brother's house but ultimately there's no place like home no even if it's a new home that you're like wait what oh yeah <laughs> what, what, what house am I in but it's your home yeah. so of course it makes sense that it would expedite your healing to be in your space it was. you know we were in a, brute, a new home we didn't know people there yet yeah 
And that's something we never even thought about, but our next door neighbor who we had never met mowed our lawn the whole time we were gone so that the HOA would not hassle us. And, what um, a gift. Did, yeah, and I had never even met them. So that was, you know, amazing to come home and feel mm. welcome. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but it was, cared yeah, for. it was good yeah. to be home. Yeah, and then maybe, you know, on the other side of all of this, you got to kind of put your house in order the way it was going to work better for you now, even than if you, you know, had gotten all that done beforehand. True. So True. It was like Christmas in a way. Yeah. Oh, there's that. I forgot about that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Rediscovering our own stuff is yeah. so fun. It's like we don't have to go out and buy a bunch of new things. Yeah. It's like, That's oh, true. I forgot about yeah. that. I did. Yeah. Step louder, so I guess your balance was getting better then. It was. I, I do. I have had a couple of falls. Both of them were in the yard where I just kind of hit an uneven place. Mm-hmm. And it's been over a year now that I fell. But I have to be really careful because of the osteoporosis. Mm-hmm. I was lucky I didn't break anything and it was a brittle I think I kind of always have that in the back of my mind sure are you careful sure you oh. mentioned a rejection mm-hmm. issue what, so rejection is a scary word in the world of like of transplants mm-hmm. um, they try to educate you on that and there are different types of rejection I had an acute episode of rejection at my one year anniversary of my lung transplant I the first year you go every three months to see the doctor. It might have even been a little more often than that the first year, but they do what's called a bronchoscopy where they uh, put you to sleep, like the same methods of like when you have a colonoscopy or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, they go down your into your lungs and they do, they just kind of look around briefly and mm-hmm. take a little small tissue piece for mm-hmm. examination. Yeah, And they're looking for signs of inflammation that might indicate rejection. About 50% of lung transplants patients will have rejection in the first year. And if it's the acute form of rejection, it's typically, it's very easily treated Mm -hmm. with an adjustment in your medications. And so I had been through a lot of bronchoscopies while I was in the hospital. Every time something would change, they would do a bronch to see if everything was okay. And then I was having them every time I went to Duke that first year. And so I was kind of surprised. I was at the year mark before it ever showed up for me. The, what they prescribe is um, the first line of defense is to do an IV of steroids for three days. And I had that done at home in Charlotte. Mm-hmm. A home nurse came out to do that. And then they do a follow-up bronch about a month later. And for me, they did that, and it didn't improve. So the next line of defense is to do a different medication. It's called RATG, which for the for the initials R-A-T-G. It's a rabbit antithymoglobulin or something like that. It's like rabbit okay. T cells, okay. their immune system T cells. Yeah. Um, and as weird as that sound, it's very effective. Um, it's about ninety five percent effective in reversing acute okay. rejection. Oh wow. But they want you to be in the hospital. This is what I was talking about earlier about there are people in the, on my floor who are there for yes. rat G treatments. And it's, they're, yes. they're fine, but um, and they're walking around and you would never, you almost think they're a family member visiting somebody. Huh. But they want to monitor you closely because there can be some very mm-hmm. serious side effects in some mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I was one of those people. Oh, no. So I had, um, they had nasty side effects, but I had an allergic reaction. To the, to the rat G, which is oh. unfortunate because now it's no longer 
on the table for me to use as a defense if I have rejection again. Okay. And it's so effective that's kind of disappointing for me that I can't yeah. ever have that again. But you can't help an allergic reaction. It's just, yeah. That is what it is. So oh. there's the plan is three treatments. Three, it's an IV and you get it three separate days. Uh-huh. I got the first one and I had all the side effects, sick, pretty sick after that, but it's kind of like the stomach flu kind of thing. Okay. The second day is when I had um, I had like full body rash, everything was swelling oh, up, kind of reaction. Rash is pretty. And then uh, everything was kind of side effect for allergic. Wow. So after the second day, they decided, well, of course, I can't have the third treatment. So I wasn't sure if I'd had enough of them for it to work. So they said, well, let's just give you the two obviously and stop at that and we'll see how it goes and they uh, went back in about four weeks later and had another bronchoscopy and it had, it had reversed my rejection so that was two two plus years ago and i haven't had any issues since that's so I'm, great. I'm i'm unfortunate that's on that. really great so and there are other treatments mm-hmm. but the most effective one is just not in my repertoire anymore yeah. unfortunately yeah well hopefully you won't need I hope anything not. i hope not yeah, yeah i pray yeah. not but i think there's hope that if I do, mm-hmm. it's okay. It's not something to get panicked about sure. initially. Yeah. Sure. Have you felt on this side of everything any moment where you just kind of think, I'm good? Or do you kind of live feeling like, you know, your health could yeah. teeter at any minute either way? First off, I would say I still, in the still places in my life, go, did this really happen to me? Right, this is a bad dream. I cannot believe yeah. that this is my life. Mm-hmm. What in the world? Mm-hmm. So it's almost like you can't even believe it sometimes. Yeah. But more directly to your question is, I feel like I do have that conversation from the doctor. We're trading one set of problems for another. Mm-hmm. Seven to nine year prognosis kind of thing. I mean, I have tried to... And I am positive. I feel good. I'm doing mm-hmm. great. And I'm. I look around when I go to the clinic, and I know I'm. I'm doing well. Mm-hmm. When I and I sure. see on my support group, and I see physically with my eyes some of the other people in the clinic, and I realize. Sure. I'm. I'm. I'm one of the lucky ones. Yeah. But I do try to live and take care of myself as best as I can, in anticipation of. If something were to happen, they would give me another transplant. Okay. And they said and that. They, they have not. I oh. just hope that oh, they I would. See. I see. And I mean, if I'm, and, and they have done that with other people mm-hmm. on my support group. I see people. Okay. I'm getting my second done. Yeah. Um, age would be an issue. Um, mm-hmm. I am 61. I'll be 62 this year. Mm-hmm. I don't think that would be on the table for me if I hit the 70 plus mark. Maybe early 70s. I don't want something to happen between now and 70 just yeah. to get that second one. But yeah. that might be a. a an issue that would make it harder for them to want to do that for me. I really like what you're saying about how you're doing everything proactively to keep you as healthy as you can. Right. Well, generally speaking, for a better quality right. of life, but also in case you had to have another one. Right. It makes me think about, do you remember when the plane, Captain Sullivan, Captain Sully mm-hmm. landed yeah. the plane from Charlotte to New York, right. landed in the Hudson? And I was reading the different passengers' remarks on that later in an article, and, and one guy said that it was such a good reminder for him to always stay in the best health possible because you never know when you're going to need it. And right. It was like I was just thinking if I was 
not in the shape right. that I was, could I have gotten out and on the wing and, you know, yeah. lifted off or however they did it. And I've, his words have never left me. It's right. like, wow, you, again, like kind of do do things before you, you need to reap the benefit of it. Right. So like, it's really great that you're keeping proactive about yeah. uh, your health, just quality of life now. And to keep yourself ready, God forbid, right. we need another one. I think yeah. that's great. Because I think, you know, a lot of people just kind of live in this haze of day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month. And we just kind of just coast right. in this, like, nebulous fog. Like, this is just whatever. And things can happen. I things know. can change the scenario so fast. That's true. I think, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think this is probably one of the only negative things about my journey and it's something that I'm working on with the Lord daily but before this ever happened I'm sure if anyone else has been through a trauma of any kind you you live this life of like that doesn't happen to me that happens to somebody else Mm -hmm. nothing bad's going to happen in my life and when something bad happens in your life you you begin to expect bad things to happen in your life mm-hmm. or you it's almost like you're waiting for that other shoe to drop as they say yeah and that's not a that's not a good way to live and god would not want us to live that way he came that we would have life and have it abundantly yes filled with joy and yeah i've tr- i do it i this is a conversation i have a lot with the lord you know it it, it boils down to just a lack of faith and and mm-hmm. it's just a it's just my my Achilles heel and something that I struggle with. I'm I'm working daily to have more victory in that that, you know, God brought me through this for a reason mm-hmm. and he's faithful mm-hmm. and he's good mm-hmm. and he has a plan. Yes. And he will accomplish it. And I don't need to worry about right. it anymore. So That's right. I I love Psalm one thirty nine that says every one of our days were written in his book before one of them came to be. There so he already knows. Yes, he does. And it's not our burden to bear, to wonder and worry and, and you know, wring our hands over how much longer because right. that's already been determined. decided. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and how great that he right. gives us the responsibility to say how are you gonna use this right. time, you know? And I could totally see I mean I think everybody would would struggle with that as well. I think probably what you're feeling is very normal, wouldn't you think? Yeah, I'm I know. I just know for me, that's something that I've struggled with. I mean, I've always been a a proponent of. I wish I had journaled. I'll put it like mm-hmm. that. I wish I wish I had journaled more during that um, mm-hmm. season. I just really wasn't able. You know, it's, it's a great tactic to recall yes. the Lord's blessings yes. and faithfulness to give you encouragement yes. and hope. Yes. And you know, I talk with my daughter a lot about this lately. She's in the midst of a job search and I was like you know God is has mm-hmm. helped look how he did this for you in this other situation he true to himself faithful it's yes. going to work out yeah and the same thing is true of this journey it's like I've just described to you all the ways that the Lord right prepared me and walked right. with me and uh, and put me in the right hospital rooms yes. and with the right mm-hmm. doctors and and, and fixed things that were wrong mm-hmm. with my ribs and my back and and protected me from infection and all these things. I mean, it was a lot of stuff that he did. Why would you say, why do you even, how could you not trust him? I'm, I'm bone and flesh. You're <laughs> human. 
<laughs> and I do struggle. Yeah, but. well, and I mentioned it must be a normal feeling, and that doesn't at all, I don't mean to diminish what you're saying. I'm just saying, like, I hope that there's no shame, self-shame or guilt in feeling those, because I really think he understands us. And, he does. And, and we are we are He's, just human. We're going to feel it all. Yeah. And, and he, he knows, knows that, that too, for sure. And speaking of feeling things, when you talk about genuinely having PTSD and the trauma, mm-hmm. have um, I did an episode earlier with EMDR because I've been working uh-huh. with EMDR for a couple of years now. It's changed my life. <laughs> and have you considered doing anything like that to help with this, or do you feel like it's pretty manageable on your own? You know, I'm I'm somewhat of a pragmatic person and. Um, I guess with my medical background, um, it kind of helps to just not run away with certain fears about medicine. I just kind of look mm-hmm. at things practically and mm-hmm. know it's going to be okay in the end, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes sense, but I did have some therapy, like I mentioned, immediately after. I, I, I think I, I remember going through those times and it was... I just felt like telling the therapist, you know, I feel like God's going to take care of this, and mm-hmm. I don't really need to go through this therapy, you know? I don't know. But <laughs> you don't have any, like, moments of, of triggers, like smells or sights or something on TV uh, if that it's is, a hospital show. That's funny. Um, this will be crazy. I was in the hospital, you know, for the season before Christmas. There is a um, commercial... And I forget the, the name of the device, but it's that mirror that you exercise in yeah. front of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the yeah. jingle that they play with that commercial. If I heard that once, I heard it a thousand times mm-hmm. or more at Duke. And I, if I hear and they recycle that commercial when it comes around Christmas time when people buy those kinds of things yes. at the first of the year when yes. you're setting your New Year's. Oh, if yeah. I hear that commercial, I'm back in my hospital room. Fascinating. And I'm and I'm up. It's yeah. it's I can't I can't handle it. Wow. I have to turn it off. Yeah. We hold our memories yeah. in so many different ways inside of us, whether it's through our, you know, what we're hearing, what we're smelling, yeah. what we're tasting, seeing. It doesn't have to be so black and white. It can be something so out, unexpected <laughs> like that. Yeah. yeah. That kind of, that just takes me right back to the day. Sure. sure. And I don't, and I ate a lot, you know, I couldn't eat very well. That was something that I struggled with. It's not uncommon with lung transplants, they have to move everything around in your digestive tract so right. much. I have now have a lifelong issue to deal with with my esophagus that doesn't move the food down in a coordinated way and I have to think about how much I eat at one time mm-hmm. and things small like that. Small bites or chew it more. Yeah, just not large okay. meals and mm-hmm. smaller meals through the day, things like that. Mm-hmm. And then when it does go down, it sits in my stomach longer than it should. So that kind of makes you feel sick. Mm. I didn't eat much, and I didn't eat well in the hospital, and it kind of probably delayed my healing and whatnot. But I just had all this going on, and it just was difficult. Yeah. So I did eat a lot of baked potatoes. It was one of the items that they had on the menu, and oddly enough, tuna fish. And I, I have, I bet I've eaten one baked potato and yeah. maybe one tuna fish sandwich in the last three years like I don't want that anymore I had more of that than I ever wanted Mm -hmm. so that's another example I guess no it's it's interesting because potatoes are like such a comfort food I mean I like potatoes I don't want a baked potato too much of anything (laughs) can ruin it for sure that's interesting and then maybe you're I'm just hypothesizing but maybe you know again the appetite with the body going that's not my main concern right now we're working on the lungs so just kind of 
yeah, going to I, yeah. a resting place with that, maybe. Yeah, delayed gastric emptying, and they call it esophageal dysmotility, are pretty common okay. post-transplant. Yeah, yeah. And they are not, Yeah. there's not. There's nothing they can do about yeah. it. Yeah. So it's just something you have to learn to live with. Okay. Wow. But like you said, it's yeah. It, it's doable. You can manage it. Mm. It's just amazing to hear you talk about some of the post ramifications because you just look so healthy. I feel you look amazing. I feel good. I don't. Uh, sitting here, I feel like my old self. You know, the first year, I'm just trying to like live. I've got this open sure. wound. Yeah. And then I had the rejection episode. The second year was really more about really getting my strength back. Mm-hmm. And I still could be stronger. I've, I've had to resign myself to the fact that I may, I'm not going to probably have the endurance I had before. And it's not always lungs and legs, but mm-hmm. like my back just doesn't mm-hmm. want to stand all day. I would, mm-hmm. There's a few things, I would, a, a volunteer opportunity I wanted to... Um, help with Cakeable. I know you're familiar yes. you with that. Yes, we did an uh, episode on Cakeable. Yeah, yeah. so I've, um, I've been over there a couple of times. It's a little hard for me to, to stand that long. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's my goal with therapy right now is to work where I can get stand longer and, and be able to, mm-hmm. you know, work over there a little bit. I'm a big advocate for goals. And yeah. it's not that we are, we live on a perform. I'm not saying at all like we live on a performance-based because I know our society is performance-based. Like your value is tied to what you can do. And I, I don't agree with that at all. But I do think goals are so good for us just personally to say like, all right, I'm going to set this one and it's, and I'm going to do it. And I'm going to be able to set another one. And I'm going to do it because it just gives that momentum to build everything, like the mental fortitude, the emotional right. strength, yeah. the physical strength. I think goals are great when yeah. they're healthy and within reason and all that. I yeah. think goals are a great thing. I've always been goal setter. And yes. part of that's your job and as therapy or mm-hmm. setting achievable goals and short-term, mm-hmm. long-term goals is kind of just a something yeah. I've adapted to yeah. but I incorporated think, rather but yeah. yeah yeah like with with your life now I think having goals would be so beneficial instead of just going well you know we'll just see whatever it is it is that that doesn't help move the needle you know? right like, yeah like keep you going right. forward keep yeah. your life going forward that's really good that's good so you, you're working you know at capable some now and then you'll have more goals to do yeah. right more travels and yeah. Things that Absolutely. we have to do, for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely. So if we um, talk about a little bit, this gets kind of, I know, tender. So one of the reasons I wanted to have you on was your story is beautiful. You're an amazing person. You have handled Thank this you. better than anyone I know would. Thanks. It's hard to think about having to, like what you were saying before about like, did this really happen to me? Did Have I really gone, you know, through all yeah. this? Well, maybe not everybody listening will one day need a transplant because of a chronic health issue, but boy, it could take like an acute issue, like a, like, you know, a bad car accident mm-hmm. or something where all of a sudden they realize, oh, my life has totally changed now. Right. So I think educational awareness on the process and the person behind it right. is, is so important because we really, none of us know what tomorrow's going to, to be. And so on that note, switching to the donor side. Right. So what information are you given about the donor? Anything at yeah. all? So there, that you do not know who your donor is okay um that's kept confidential 
You can write a letter to your donor, their family, um, and there are guidelines for that. You can't tell them who you are. You can just, just talk to them about your experience or, um, of course, your gratitude and maybe what you've been able to do since your transplant, that kind of thing. The agency that does the organ procurement and transplant coordination, I guess to say, it's sent to them. They know who my donor is, and they send it to the donor family. And the donor family can then decide if they want to reveal who they are and have you Mm -hmm. reveal who you are. Mm -hmm. And then you can have your relationship away from that organization. So I have not done that. Um, There are people in my support group who have had both ends of the spectrum of a reply, uh, a a response. So Mm -hmm. some who have described beautiful relationships with their donor's family. They know all about their donor and what led to their death. And then they have some people who have sent multiple letters who've never received a reply. Mm -hmm. So in the beginning, I was hesitant to write a letter for this main reason was that nowadays, if you decide to be an organ donor, you could potentially donate organs to numerous people. You have your heart, lungs, liver, Mm -hmm. pancreas, eyes, eyes, corneas, Mm -hmm. on and on. Mm -hmm. Um, The liver can be divided into pieces and affect more than one person, one kidney to two different people. So it can be a lot of people. And in my mind, I thought, you know, this, this precious family is is grieving and to be bombarded with letters from potentially a dozen people felt inappropriate to me at the moment and that's just me it may not you don't know who that person is and they may have wanted a letter right away but anyway I just felt like I needed to give them a a good year to grieve go through those firsts the first the first birthday they missed the first Christmas all of this that's so compassionate of you. So the second, thank you. So the second year, I wrote my letter, and I have it on my phone, mm-hmm. saved. But I began to just really pray about when the right time was. And mm-hmm. truthfully, this may sound selfish, but I felt like I really needed to be prepared to not get a reply, first mm-hmm. of all, mm-hmm. but to handle the reply when I got it, if mm-hmm. I did get one. Mm-hmm. And I'm not I'm not there yet, I have to say. I just haven't felt like, I think part of it is that, and I, and I don't know for sure, I don't have any idea, but with the way they told me, as I mentioned to you, that my donor was gonna be a, a small person, I just, mm-hmm. a, I think it might be a child, and I just don't know. Yeah. If that grief, how how that's going to affect me? That's selfish. But I just am not there. It's human. I'm I'm not. Yeah. I I see it more as human than selfish. I want to be able to be in a place where I can deal with that, Mm -hmm. and then and then I'll send the letter. So, Mm -hmm. and I feel like I'm 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 certainly closer than I was, Mm -hmm. but I have not moved forward with that. But. You can, you know, for those who are listening who might be in that situation, there are ways to meet your donor's family. Mm -hmm. How has the donor's sacrifice, and I'm sure the family working on their behalf to make decisions Mm -hmm. or whatever, carrying out their wishes, if that's Mm -hmm. the case, how has that affected you, like mentally, emotionally, spiritually? Yeah, it's it's hard. I mean, I I think about it mostly on my anniversary because I know... I'm celebrating, and they're 
day is looking a lot harder than mine. They're grieving. They're reopening wounds and revisiting a terrible day. And so I think about them a lot, but I particularly think about them at Mm -hmm. that point. And, Mm -hmm. you know, how... (laughs) How do you thank somebody for doing that? They're the hardest, most imaginably painful experience, mm-hmm. and they choose to do something very selfless. Mm-hmm. And they do it to honor that person. So I try to, I don't talk about it, but inside I try to live my life in a way that would honor that sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And you do it so well. I know uh, this last anniversary you had, you your your Facebook post was was so grateful, thankful, celebratory. But you were so quick to also say, "I'm also thinking about the yeah. family who's having a really hard day today. Yeah. You don't even know who the person is or their family, yeah. but you you I just think <laughs> that you honor them so well, right. and and you have such a heart of gratitude." I think the the greatest way to do that is to continue to live. You know, yeah. take care of this gift that's been given to me. Take my pills, go to my therapy, t- do the things that the doctors tell yeah. me, and live as long as possible. Not just to live, but to live well. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, that would yeah that would be the best way to you know sure. show them gratitude. Sure. I think. If it's not too personal, could I? And you don't have to answer if it's uncomfortable. But have you ever felt any sense of survivor's guilt? Yeah. You versus them. You know, I think. I think that that's something some people do experience. I don't know that I. I really. I felt. I've always felt pain and hurt that somebody died in order to that I would you know, be able to receive these lungs. But I do know that that wasn't the reason that they passed away, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't I don't necessarily really feel guilty for it, Good. no. Good, yeah. yeah. I think I'm the yeah. last person trying to speak for someone yeah. who's been in a position to, to have their bodies donated, but I, I, I would think they'd want you not to feel guilty. Right. They'd want you to live and and nurture yourself and go with life right you know? live the life that they couldn't i think that that would be what they would want that would be what i would want if it right. was me donating so Amen. Um, yeah yeah i'm glad i'm really glad but it's a question to ask because i'm sure that there's <laughs> help for that if people right. if people need that i'm sure you know? kind of like why why do i get to live and, and not them you know that's i could see that could be a real a real obstacle in the healing journey. Mm-hmm. I feel like I I probably have a tendency to a, an avoidance type of personality, so I just try not to go there really. Yeah. Um, more than I need to. It's good. You know. It's good. Yeah. Well, I think that you you've honored their life and you continue to very 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 well. Thank and you. I'm so glad Thank that you. there's so many support groups available. You I I had no idea. I'm right. so glad. Could you talk about some of the ways that you self care? So support groups would be one. Counseling would be one. But what are some of the things that you do for yourself to keep kind of like your mind, body, spirit? calm and peaceful and enjoying the day you're given what do you do nice for yourself well 
my life is a lot slower than it used to be. So, and that part of that's just because Brent has now retired and we're out mm-hmm. in Waxhaw and we just don't have much going on. But I have found a lot of joy and contentment and just, you know, spending time with Brent and reading, relaxing. Mm-hmm. We have a very quiet, still little mm-hmm. life. The kids are not in the home anymore. And with but the post-COVID world that we live in, there's just not a lot of um, buzzing around like we probably used to do. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's true for you, but... No, it's, it's a totally yeah. different world we live all in. <laughs> yeah, like. I kind of like it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, some people talk about that empty nester phase and transition, and I'm like, I call it a rhythm. It's a whole different rhythm, and I like it. It, it suits mm-hmm. me. Good. So, yeah. Good. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Uh, you know, you talked about how you, you want to keep everything as calm as you can and how, you know, you don't have as much of a tolerance for stress and stuff. So it sounds like yeah. being with your favorite guy and reading. And yeah, I mean, and I, I mean, and maybe you would feel like prayer is a, a, a self-care activity, but one of the biggest blessings of this whole journey and this story is my prayer life has just... Mm. changed so much Mm. um i talked about it a little bit earlier about finding it easier to pray for other people i I have tried to adopt a philosophy if if someone asks for prayer i stop and i pray that Mm. very minute Mm because i think my life before was like yeah i'll pray for that and you know i might get to Mm -hmm. it and most Mm -hmm. of the time i would but maybe maybe there are times when i didn't and i should have and i've tried to to want you know um when people ask for prayer, I, I do. I stop and pray right then, and it's been a, a joy and a blessing and a privilege and something um, mm-hmm. I, I, a, it's just a big part of my life now. Mm-hmm. I welcome the opportunities to pray for people because mm-hmm. I just saw so much how the Lord blessed me through so many people's prayers. And I think if there's one message about this whole journey, and I didn't speak about much of it during this conversation, but... I had so many people praying for me, mm-hmm. people I never knew mm-hmm. and, and will never meet. Mm-hmm. I have a friend who is a Messianic Jewish rabbi, and he's used to live here in Charlotte, now lives out in California. He had people in Israel putting my name in the wailing wall. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Just literally people praying all over the world. When I, I can say that it, literally. And I would hope that this story would bless them to know that God hears your prayers mm-hmm. and he answers them mm-hmm. and there's great mm-hmm. encouragement in that so yeah my prayer life has been um, emboldened and yeah uh, I have a lot of I find a lot of peace and comfort and yeah. joy in doing yes. that now yes joy of the Lord is our strength <laughs> absolutely yeah uh, you mentioned the neighbor you hadn't even met mowed your lawn. Mm-hmm. You've got people putting your name in the wailing hall. <laughs> um, what are some of the ways that, like, your immediate family, I know your brother opened up his home to you, which is no small thing. What are So so for family members that have someone that is about to or is in the process of, of, of a transplant yeah. or another serious medical crisis like right. what, what are some of the best ways that you found was helpful from from your support system so any advice to, to a family member is to you know understand what you're getting ready to go into and the most important thing I, I think that is important for them to do is to have empathy mm-hmm. 
mm. for the um, organ recipient, the person going through that trial. Um, I see some sad stories on my Facebook page where family members are not truly understanding what you're going through and expecting you to do more and do better and get back to work and do all these things, mm -hmm. not really understanding how sick you may be and how mm -hmm. hard it may be to get better mm -hmm. as much as you want to. And, mm -hmm. and there's little patience and things like this. So mm -hmm. I think a lot of that just comes from just not understanding and having a lack of education or appreciation for the process and the, and the journey. And to understand that before you get into it, it helps you to be that empathetic and compassionate mm -hmm. and understanding caregiver. But you also, as a caregiver, at least in people who are on a journey like mine, that caregiver is called upon to keep you going and not let you off the hook when you don't want to do things yeah. that are going to get you better. Yeah. So there is a little bit of a balance, but I think there's all, um, I sense more of an uh, error on the not quite getting it side and not being compassionate and empathetic enough um, for the for the patient. So do the due diligence of doing the homework <clears throat> to find out like the nuances of of, of before, during, and after. Because what's you talked about so many different avenues that I wouldn't have even known about, like of of like this prednisone that you need to be on. It affects your kidneys. Like there's yeah. so it's it's an intricate puzzle. And so do the homework and ask the questions. Right. For sure. Be ready. And yeah. Be, yeah. Mm -hmm. And understanding how important a caregiver can be and the success of, and the outcome. Because they, I know at least at Duke, they impress upon you that without a good caregiver, you're not going to make it. Really? No, they won't even do it if you don't, like I said really? earlier, if you don't have a caregiver. And, yeah. and that's what, that can be really heartbreaking. I'm seeing in my support group people who are literally alone and they don't have a family member and they're asking does anyone know anybody that can be my caregiver? Oh, mercy. Because they won't do this transplant if I don't have a caregiver. And you know, you know people need different layers of support afterward. I needed a lot. Mm -hmm. Some people don't need as much, but you definitely need someone. And they know, again, the whole, um, it's not uncommon after, after this procedure that they may hit periods of just depression or lack of motivation to take their medicine and mm -hmm. you've got to take your medicine mm -hmm. and you've got to stay active and they might just want to go home and sit in the chair without somebody gently pushing yeah. them to let's get back to it so you know? is there such a thing as like a surrogate caregiver you know i i don't know um i didn't have to ask those questions fortunately because i had good mm -hmm. caregivers i think they do frown upon you having to hire someone to do that because it you know they might get into it and realize they want to quit. Right, right, um, right, right. But I think I mentioned. But that, honestly, that family can quit on you too. Sometimes that <laughs> would be better than families. Well, <laughs> not in my case, thank good, but goodness. But you know, they have to sign a contract yeah. that they will. They do yeah. help you do yeah. these things. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. So this is a incredibly broad question, and you you've answered it in in a lot of ways already. But basically. One big question would be, how has the transplant changed your life? Yeah. As far as how my life has changed, you know, in, in a lot of ways, I, I feel like my old self and things haven't changed, but things have changed a lot. I, I'm a different person for sure. I'm a lot more laid back, I think. I don't mm. worry too much about some things. I still worry, but 
I was the queen of worrying before. Mm. I try. I think I made a comment earlier about just not sweating the small things. I mm-hmm. just things roll off a little bit easier than they used to. I don't get that worked up or worried up, upset about things as as I did before. Mm-hmm. But the most valuable thing, Christy, out of the whole experience is the dynamics of our family. Mm. Um, we don't hesitate to tell each other how much we love each other, how much we care about each other, how much we um, value our time together. Mm. I wouldn't trade that for anything. The depth mm. of connection and love in our family has grown so much. Wow. And it's just been a beautiful, beautiful thing. It has renewed my sister's faith and trust in the Lord. Everything in that regard mm. is just mm-hmm. so rich. Mm. So you don't want to have to go through something like that to get to that point. But it really is something uh, I treasure and value and wouldn't trade for anything. But it says a lot about you and your family because crisis and trauma and can can rip a family apart too true but the fact that you guys locked arms and lean into it together yeah. and are closer on the other side of it that's a choice because I mean people can just be like I can't deal with this I'm out I yeah. mean people can leave people at the worst moments yeah um, people can shut down withdraw and, and some of that is normal of course right. you know within the grieving process but Grieving doesn't mean someone has to die. Grieving can be, you know, just change. Grieving change, which is what this has done. Yeah. But the fact that you guys aren't bitter and salty and angry, like, why did this have to happen? You know, all of that. Right. This is a lot about you and your family. Thank you. Yeah. You know, my brother had a harder time. Um, He he could not come to see me at the hospital Mm. before my transplant. It was just Mm. too much. But Mm -hmm. he... I didn't feel abandoned. I understood it. I was like, I'm yeah. kind of like that. Like, you don't like to see people. I, I'm visual that way, and I like those kinds of images burn in my mind. I can't mm-hmm. unsee them, kind of thing. But he was there the night they called me to surgery, and he sat those ten hours all night long mm-hmm. in the waiting room with my sister and my husband. It wasn't, I'm sure, you know, a picnic for him to have everybody come to his home for four months and live and then bring the dog too. Um, That's showing love in a very tangible way. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, our family has um, really grown closer. Our parents are gone. And we just, as far as my family, it's just me, my brother and sister. Mm -hmm. And, of course, they extends that out to Brent and the kids. But um, we're very close. And Mm -hmm. I'm so grateful for for Mm -hmm. that because in my line of work, I've seen – a lot of hard, you know, family relationships and things. Yeah. It's sad yeah. to think that yeah. people don't always have that. You know, it makes me think of back when we were talking about preventative measures, about keeping, you know, in our good physical health and having our paperwork and affairs in order. Also, doing the work ahead of time with with family on just right. on a normal daily basis to stay close, right. stay intentional. So when those stressors in life, those big things, those storms come, there's a t- there's a well to draw from. Right. Would you say that that it was important? Because you are 
such a loving person. I know you love your husband and you love your kids. We've been doing kids, I mean, preschool. So I I know how much you love your family and, and they love you right back. And I just feel like um, you guys being able to really lean into this together is a culmination of a lot of intentional work wow. along the years. I'll credit my parents because mm-hmm. they were, we just had a great home childhood and my parents were just super amazing and loving and but they all, I always remember my mother saying one day you're not going to have anybody but each other. Um, and mm-hmm. I think part of that came from the fact that they had us late in life. They did, knew that they weren't probably going to be around. They, I was, my dad was in his mid-40s when I was born. Mm-hmm. And my mom was pushing 40. And they actually did live long lives. They lived, my mother was 89 and my dad was 92. So we did wow. have But they were always saying, them. you know. And I find myself saying those things mm-hmm. to Grant and Emily. Y'all are going to be the um, only mm-hmm. family you have when... When we're gone, and we had Emily and Grant late in our lives. I was in my mid 30s, so mm-hmm. you know, part of that I, I attribute to my parents. Um, you know, learning from them how important family is and nurturing mm-hmm. our relationships. And I do that with my children. I try to mm-hmm. encourage and nurture their relationship with each yeah. other apart from us. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm I'm sad for people that don't have that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we encourage people to start today, right? Right. Pick up that phone, make that call. Oh, you gosh, know, yes. or write that note or send that what text. Are you waiting you for? Know, to like start Life is short. It is short. Repair those bridges. You know, be the first person to stand in, in a healthy situation, you know, not right. not asking anyone to, to go into something right. uh, not healthy or not appropriate, but just um however it could be up to you. I think the Bible even says that. However it is up to you, live at peace with one another. Live at peace and with that one way another. when the when the storms come, you know, there's there's strength to draw from with each other and I it doesn't shock or surprise me a bit mm. that you guys are even closer now. That makes a lot of sense for sure. It's a blessing. Yeah. Well before we wrap up, is there uh, gosh, I just want to leave it wide open to you. Is there something else about your story that you want to share? You know, I've I've referenced a lot of details and I left one that's really this is um a goosebump kind of oh good go uh, for it <laughs> things um we have a friend I know you you'll know who I'm talking about he's a nurse and he works down at CMC in Pineville and I knew that he worked in the emergency room but I think at some point in his nursing career he's moved into working in the OR okay and I don't talk to him that often but he actually called me a couple of months ago on an unrelated topic but of course while we were talking he was asking me how I was doing and he went on to share that he as one of his roles now is to um, work in the or in the operating room when they're harvesting organs for donation Oh wow! and we don't know like I said I don't know who my donor was I don't know where they lived I don't know where they came from but he was doing one of these surgeries when a Duke doctor was present to get a pair of lungs about the time of my transplant. And it's, whoa, don't know for sure. He doesn't know either. But wouldn't it just be like the <laughs> Lord to have put him in that room when yes. that happened? Yes. It so, did get me goosebumps all over. Like, of course. Wow. Lord has every detail covered. So 
I say mm-hmm. that to give anyone who is struggling with a lack of faith or trust that mm-hmm. he can do mm-hmm. anything. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I told him, I know when I was in the hospital, there's there's phases of grief. I know you are familiar with all those. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if this was necessarily, I was in the bargaining phase. Mm-hmm. I'd already had my transplant, but I I did tell the Lord, if you if you see me through this, I, I will do everything I can to spend my days giving you glory for what you've done mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you do So that I hope well. I've done that today. Absolutely. Just a beautiful, glorifying story that's powerful and, and life-changing. I, I don't know how you've been so strong. Can you tell us what made you grow closer and, and run to God rather than getting so angry or, or discouraged that you run away from him like how uh, that's another choice that we have you know I mean I don't even know any other way you know I mean I don't know if this makes sense but when Grant was a baby he was only like about a year old and he had to have surgery and I remember being at the hospital that morning and having to literally like place him in the arms of this nurse mm-hmm. that was mm-hmm. going to take him to the mm-hmm. OR room mm-hmm. And I was like, Lord, I cannot be this child's anesthesiologist or his surgeon. I, I, I have no choice here but to trust mm-hmm. you to take care of him. Mm-hmm. And if things go bad, to take care of me. Mm-hmm. And I've, mm. I feel like I've recalled that so many times in my life. It's like I do better when I don't really have a choice. Right. If I can fix it, I'll do. I'll do everything to yeah. fix it, and I'll. I'm strong willed, and I'll get it done. Mm-hmm. But when I don't have a choice, it's kind of easy for me to go. It's yours, yeah. Lord. You can do it, yeah. and that's kind of how this whole thing has been. I really didn't have a lot of choices here. Right. And I don't. I mean, I don't know. I think about it a lot of times. I was talking with a friend yesterday. I don't know what people who don't have the Lord do. I don't mm. know how they do it. Mm. You know, how they even get up in the middle of the day mm. and get the day started. Because without a, a faith to lean on, I don't know how you function. <laughs> I just yeah. don't. So, yeah, it was not, it wasn't, I, I don't know if that sounds arrogant, but it just wasn't hard to do. Mm. Because I'm really, what other choice did I have? Yeah. And God just showed himself faithful over and over and over. All those details. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't mention that um, about a year before my transplant, I don't even know how this person's Instagram thing came up on my feed one day. And I started reading. Her name is Amanda Auer. She lived at the time in California. Her two-year-old daughter had become suddenly gravely ill with congestive heart failure and was going to need a transplant. And I don't even know, like I said, how it showed up. But I started reading her Instagram account and following that. And I followed that whole journey. This was a year or more before my wow. before my transplant. But I've thought about it a lot since, thinking God was kind of using that to start mm-hmm. me thinking mm-hmm. about transplants. And mm-hmm. this was going to be in my future because I was just riveted to her account to see how the child was doing. And sure. she she and her, her husband was a, is, is a, a musician, and, they, and he's in the praise and worship in his church and they're Christians of course and they now live in Tennessee and I still follow her and but her prayers were just so rich and Mm. it's just a blessing to read and so I was kind of like 
drawn to this mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. And, and I can see now, I'll look back and say, you know, God knew, you know, he was starting that preparation for me years before. Yeah. And then all the details that he, yeah. and the things that he did to, to pull me through. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's easy to, mm-hmm. to, to mm-hmm. walk when you know that God's got this. Mm-hmm. It's all in his plan. Mm-hmm. When, when we're walking with him, when those hard times come and we are grasping for hope and peace and all of those things to get us through strength, um, it's wonderful to be able to look behind. I like to picture it like a path where every day that we live with him, it's like another stone has been laid down, making, creating a path um, in front, but also behind. Because you look and you go, oh, I see the path that he's brought me on. So I can, this stone is when he did this. This stone is how he helped that. This stone is when he showed up in this. And so I think it makes kind of looking forward a little, I don't want to say easier because life isn't always easy, but it, it, it makes it more um, digestible to look forward to say, okay, I can keep going and doing this because I can, I can literally see all the ways in which he's already he's shown faithful. up. He's yeah. been faithful. And, and in your whole life, and especially in this journey, and such, boy, has he been in the details. I mean it. Just the biggest no and the smallest. It. I mean, it's really, you know, we serve a God who's in the miracle business to this day. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there's small miracles, and there's big miracles, and there's things that you put all together that feel like yes. a pretty big miracle. And it's humbling to be, to know that I'm a recipient of that yes. miracle. Yeah, somebody who's listen. I'm not. I'm not worthy of it. He's he's worthy of giving it, and he he does that for anybody. You don't have to be a certain person of of notoriety to receive his his blessings. Mm-hmm. And we don't have to earn it. No. And we and but yet he he thinks you're worth it. Isn't that good? Not good. Yeah. So, uh, final question I have, I guess. Is, okay. So, what would you say to encourage someone who's facing a transplant or living with a serious <coughs> chronic issue? What would you say to their family and friends and, and to them to encourage them today? They just need something. What looks to the world and in your eyes is impossible. Nothing is impossible with God. Hmm. He can do anything, hmm. and He does, and He will. Hmm. So take faith, have, have heart that it, it's going to be okay. And just one, one day at a time, one step at a time, like you were saying, it'll be, it'll, he, he wants you to worry, not let tomorrow's worries mm-hmm. you know, get ahead of you. Just take today and um, focus on that. Yeah, that's a good word because today's all we've got. That's right. None of us know tomorrow, so... That's true. That's right. That's true. Oh, Wilkie, thank you so much for, I mean, how do I thank you? You have been so open and vulnerable and so willing to share. I appreciate the opportunity. I really do. People need to hear your story. They need to hear your strength, your hope, your optimism. Thank you. They need to hear it. And I'm so grateful. This was I'm a hard grateful. ask. I know. I mean, I sat there as like, oh, do I have the guts to like <laughs> ask her to come and like 
just lay this all out um, for us, and I'm no, so appreciative. I'm glad you did. Um, I've been I've been looking forward to an opportunity. I, I have not ever shared that, but when you see the story from beginning to end, I I hope people will be blessed. And mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's mm-hmm. absolutely pretty. Yeah, good story. <laughs> absolutely, and keep living life to the fullest. Keep loving that family. That's right. So That's sweet. Right. And, Thank you again. And, Oh, yeah. It's been a blessing. Oh, what a joy. What a joy. <laughs> I've enjoyed you. hearing details I've never heard um, yet. And um, and to just see you and how beautiful and well you look. It just gives you. such a, you paint such a great picture of what hope and healing can be. And I hope that uh, you continue to do above and beyond that you, you're breaking records and <laughs> setting new bars and just Amen. dumbfounding doctors. Amen. Like, <laughs> see that. <laughs> She's just rocking it. Yeah. Wow, world. <laughs> doctor told me, I was just at Duke last week, actually. Things looked great. There you go. My daughter said, you're in the sweet spot. And I was like, yeah, I'll take that. Oh, I'm in the, like sweet, the spot. sweet spot. Let's so, stay there. Let's get some excellent. stuff done now. Yes, excellent. <laughs> let's go out and have more fun in life. Let's go do it. Set those goals, those dreams, and, and do it. Yeah, beautiful. Thanks again, Wilkie. Thank you, Christy. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and is not intended to replace medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have any medical concerns or questions, please consult a qualified healthcare professional. Thanks again for listening to part two of Wilkie's incredible double lung transplant journey. If you're interested in becoming an organ donor, first of all, thank you. To donate organs at death is a simple registration process through the state where you reside. For North Carolina residents, for example, you can register at DonateLifeNC.org. Or more conveniently, anyone can register at the DMV. For live organ donation, the process is a bit more comprehensive, and you can find more information on that at at organdonor.gov. Most importantly, please make your wishes known to your family so they can honor your request. Organ donation is the last, best, most precious gift you can give someone. Please consider being an organ donor today. Thanks again for listening to Real Deep Stuff. Follow us and subscribe to save your seat at the table for the next conversation. Also, check out our Facebook page to continue the conversation on today's topic. We'll see you there.